You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We believe God is going to meet you right where you are today as you listen and dig into His Word. I was praying in this room this past Tuesday. as I often do early in the morning and I'll be here praying and then Robert comes and I'll leave and he'll start to pray and we just kind of trade off tag team. And um, I was walking right up that aisle right there and at this point I was just like actively trying to listen for God's voice, right? You ever do that? You're praying and I hope you do this and at some point you go, okay, God, I'm going to shut up now and uh, I, I really need to hear your voice. I, I don't need to hear my voice anymore. I don't need to hear my thoughts anymore. I don't need, I need to clearly hear from you. And, and obviously the best way that we do that is through God's word, but then just to hear him in prayer, to hear his voice in your heart, or in your mind. And as I'm walking up this aisle, I just felt like I heard God say, stand, stand and sing. So my first reaction was like, right now? Like, right now, Lord, you want me to just stand right here and start singing? And then I just began to recall scriptures throughout the Bible, Galatians and 1 Corinthians and Ephesians and many other places about how we're to stand firm in our faith and, and then also sing of the salvation of the Lord. It was later that day that another mass shooting took place in our nation this time in an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. Horrific, heartbreaking, evil. I can't wrap my mind around the murder of anybody, but particularly children. And then even the previous week in Buffalo, the elderly. I can't wrap my mind around it because it is inexplicable. It's evil. And then I thought back to that morning and the words that I felt like I heard God say to me while I was just praying in here, stand, stand and sing. What does that have to do with anything? What good does that do? You might ask. So let's ask this question. What are Christians known for during times of national or worldwide crisis? A catastrophic event, a blatant display of evil. What is the general depiction and description of the body of Christ? Christians, when we experience or witness trouble in this life, and the Bible promises that we will often. I asked because a few weeks ago I mentioned a quote from a ruler that I was reading about historically in a book that I was reading about called Saints and Bullies. And it's talking basically about just Christian history in general and, and the things that we've done well and the things that we've not done well in Christendom. And this ruler, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, was riding to the emperor of Rome at that time, which was Trajan. And he was saying, listen, I, I've kind of observed these Christians. I know we're supposed to be uh, imprisoning them and executing them and all of that, but I've, I've observed them. And here's all that I've observed is that they're joyfully singing and they're sharing meals together and taking moral vows. That's just about it. 
That's all I've noticed that they do. They gather together to sing joyfully, take moral vows, and have meals together. Mind you, they're not gathering and singing joyfully and sharing meals together at the height of religious freedom. No. They're doing so in the midst of some of their brothers and sisters being captured, then tried, and if not recanting their faith, publicly executed as an example to everyone else. However, they still gathered, they still sang joyfully to the Lord, they still shared meals together as a family, if you will, even in the face of government-sponsored persecution and evil, they stood and they sang. We're coming to the end of our series in Ephesians, Sit, Walk, Stand. And that's where we are near the end of this, the standing part of this title, if you will. Today we're in chapter 6. So if you have your Bible with you, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 6. And we're going to be starting in verse 10 where we left off last week. Now, while you're getting there, I want to reiterate some of the things that we heard and we've heard over the last however many weeks we've been in this from Ephesians, what Paul is trying to teach us, what Ephesians emphasizes. What we, here's what it emphasizes. What we do as believers flows out of what Christ has done on the cross and then who we are in Christ. First, you must know that you are in Christ. That's the first thing, that you are in Christ and you are now seated with him in heavenly places. That is our position in this life in Christ, seated with him. Secondly, you must believe in his immeasurable power. The same power of the resurrection is now at work inside of you. Then you must walk. Here's the walking part. We walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Be continually filled with the Holy Spirit obeying and yielding to the life of God in every way. Maybe you remember a few weeks ago, it could be a small little cup that might be the time that you're giving God or it could be a 12-gallon drum. Whatever it is that you're letting the Holy Spirit fill your life and you're walking in the Spirit. And then and only then are you able to get to this spot we're talking about today, which is to stand against the power of the enemy through the duration of your Christian life. And I will say this, thank you, thank you. Sometimes, whether it's Miss Joe or somebody else, right, Miss Jennifer or somebody, there are times that we want to applaud what Christ is doing in our hearts and lives. And so just let me free you up. It's okay to applaud the word of God here in this church, all right? It's not me. I'm, I'm not looking for the applause. I'm looking for the agreement in what Christ has done and what his truth he's saying in his word. Because it's like when you're talking to your kids, you go, do you hear what I'm saying? I need some acknowledgement, right? And so uh, not that you're my kids, you, we are family, but I'm the spiritual father of this house and so we can go that way if we want to. But we would acknowledge the truth of God's word. Okay, that's just a side note. So let's read it. So that we would stand and sing the praises to the one who has set us free and conquered death. Ephesians 6.10, finally. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you could take a stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. 
I find it ironic that this is what I felt like God was saying to me on Tuesday before I ever really got into a whole lot of unpacking this passage of scripture for this message. The verse starts off with the word finally, meaning finally in light of everything that I've just taught, basically Paul's saying in Ephesians 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, finally we recall the rest of the book of Ephesians before we try to do what comes next. That's what he's saying. Hey, before you try to stand against the evil one in this day of evil that will come, remember everything finally. So let's do that a little bit more. I've done that some, but let's do it a little more. Finally, in light of the fact that God's eternal purpose was to create a single new humanity through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and ultimately unite the whole church and the whole of creation under the headship of Jesus. Finally, in light of the fact that the unique part of this plan is the inclusion of both Jew and Gentile into God's brand new society through the equal footing at the cross. Finally, with division and discrimination gone in your life and in the church. Finally, with a oneness having emerged in Christ through which everyone are equal members of the same body and equal sharers of the promises of Christ. Finally, knowing in Christ there's one father who has one family through one son, one savior held together by one spirit. Finally, because all of that, we live in a manner worthy of this distinction as a new reconciled society. We are to demonstrate unity in our Christian fellowship while at the same time rejoicing in our uniqueness, in our differences, in our gifts, in our callings, in our backgrounds. Finally, we are to what? Mutually submit to one another in our relationships in the church and in our homes. Finally, since unity, diversity, purity, and harmony are the main characteristics of our new lives in Christ. Finally, since all of this is a description of who we already are in Christ, now stand. It's amazing, right? We can read a word like that and just move right on past it. And as I'm sitting there, it's like, no, what is he saying? Finally, what? Finally, at the end of this chapter, finally, at the end of this book, finally, I'm done writing you a letter. No, finally, in light of all that I've taught you and wrote to you of who you are in Christ, this is the only way you're going to be able to stand against evil. So with all that being true, Ephesians 1 through 6, those chapters, Paul goes on in verse 10 through 13 to bring us back to reality of, well, that's already in Christ, but here's the not yet. Hmm, it's kind of like, that's who we are, Jesus. Yeah, but that's the already in Christ. However, let me bring you back to reality. You're in a spiritual battle. While all this is true in Christ already, he reminds us that we have a dangerous enemy and we have a constant opposition. Our enemy, the devil, hates everything that God loves, and that includes you. So if God's plan from the beginning, from the beginning of creation, right, is to create a new society of reconciled people, then guess what? The enemy and his hordes will do everything within their power to destroy that community. If God through Jesus has broken down every wall of division and hostility, which Ephesians talks about between ethnicities and cultures and gender, then the devil through his demonic forces will do all that they can do to rebuild and fortify those divisions and walls. Does God want his reconciled, redeemed family to live with one another in harmony and purity? Yes. Jesus prayed as much. 
So antithetically, the powers of hell will do all that they can to sow dissension and sin. Why? Because God wants harmony and purity. So what does the devil do? Dissension and sin. As much as I would like to be in this peaceful, serene, undisturbed tranquility of biblical fellowship with all of you, it's not our reality. And if I read my Bible correctly, it never will be this side of heaven. I'll get a little transparent. Whenever I teach on something, I'm almost always either having come out of a season where I've been putting into practice or I'm coming into a season where I'm about to have to put it into practice. That would be a good warning for all of you too, maybe just to be alert, that if, as last week, you heard about not seeing just what you have lost and remembering what you have gained, then probably this week the enemy tried to remind you of all that you lost. If last week we talked about all the friends and the people that, that maybe you don't have anymore that, that, are, that has hurt you in some way while forgetting the one Ruth that God may have put beside you, maybe that was something that you were tempted to have to deal with and walk away from God in some way this week. Spiritual warfare kind of kicked in a little bit this week as we're talking about it for me. Had to remind myself of last week's message, had to remind myself of this week's message that this side of heaven, we're not going to be without conflict. I even said to a friend of mine on the phone that just called me out of the blue, actually, Andy King, he'll be preaching here this summer. He was actually calling me, he said, I feel like I want to tell you something. I don't have to go into what he told me, but man, it was so encouraging. I needed to hear it so bad. He goes, it's kind of random. I'm like, no, it's not random at all. I needed that. Oh, and by the way, I can't come and preach on the 10th. Like what? So I got him to come on the 24th. So he is still coming. But as I read my Bible, I know that we're in difficulty. In 1998, there was a movie came out called The Truman Show. I don't know if you remember, you know, really, I thought it was a good movie at the time. I don't know if I went back and watched it, what I would think today. But in this movie, basically the, the story, the premise is this young, this guy, Truman, is, is born and raised in a town called Sea Haven. It's an idyllic, perfect place. I mean, everything seems so in place and perfect and it's a complete fabrication and he doesn't even know it. That everything that it's all on TV, everybody's watching his life and he thinks it's a real life, but it's not because there's really nothing like that. There's no place on earth like Sea Haven. There's nothing idyllic. There's nothing perfect this side of heaven. There's no place where there's always safety and security and you never have to worry about anything. That place does not exist. Not even in America. I mean, if we think about our own context over the last few weeks, we've had mass shootings and murders in a grocery store, a church, a nail salon, and an elementary school. All places that should be safe. So what do we do? Paul starts off by using the word finally, which is better translated henceforward or for the remaining time that we have. Here's how we can put this. For the remaining time that you have on this earth, and none of us know how long that is, because we're not promised tomorrow, he's saying you should be ready to stand. And I'll add to stand and sing because that's what Christians are known for. 
in the middle of a cosmic conflict, you are to stand and sing. We live on a spiritual battlefield where there's going to be no ceasefire, no temporary truce. The enemy doesn't take a break from stealing and lying and destroying. But until Jesus comes back again, we're in this cosmic spiritual battle. It's a battle, yes, that has been won ultimately and decisively on the cross by Jesus. But the peace of God that comes through the cross of Christ will only be experienced this side of heaven in the midst of a relentless struggle against terrible evil. Or as Ephesians says, not flesh and blood, but the powers of the principalities of this dark age. It's a struggle. So what's needed to be, what's needed for us to have in this struggle Paul begins to tell us in the next few verses, and let me say this, for the purpose beyond, purposes beyond my understanding, God has decided to enlist us and to use us to gain victories in the spiritual war here and now. I don't know why. I wouldn't pick me. I wouldn't pick us, but he has, and he does. So he's done that and he's decided to use us here and now. And Paul's telling us what's gonna be needed in this fight this fight against evil that he's warning us about. And here's what he says, you're going to need strength and not like your physical strength. He says, you need to be strong, but not just strong. Cause a lot of times we're like, man, you got to get strong. You got to be strong. No, you don't need to be strong. You need to be strong in the Lord. That's what he's saying. Matter of fact, the Bible says is that in your weakness, he is strong. Thank God. So I don't know. I don't have to be strong, but I do need the strength of God to make me strong. How, many, how often do you feel strong? I mean, how, how many days do you wake up and feel like you could conquer the world and the devil and all of his hordes all by yourself? His strength, God's, is made perfect in our weakness. So we're being exhorted to experience a strength that is not our own in this call to prayer and spiritual warfare. There's something else important about this directive. It's not something we do to ourselves, like going to the gym to get stronger. Like, I can do that to myself. Or not. I can go, I can work out, I can try to get stronger, I, I can do those things to myself and for myself. It's something, this case, it's something that is done to us and it's done continually to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Just like we said a few weeks ago, I'll remind you again, maybe you've thought about those different size containers and cups and the water of the Holy Spirit that's poured out through his word and time with him. Paul is saying that we are strengthened in the Lord by spending time with the Lord. Paul's not giving us an instruction on a quick fix. It's not like here, drink this, you know, like, like a kid, like I've said, uh, drink this shake and you'll look like whatever, Tony Atlas. No, it's not going to happen in one shake. I don't care how many raw eggs, how many bananas, how many protein powder, how much protein powder you put in there. It's not going to work with one. And Paul's saying this isn't a quick fix, but he's exhorting us to a life spent drawing near to Christ, to drawing strength from him. To be strong in the Lord means to know his strength and to draw closer to him. Our spiritual gains, if you will, are made with God in his word, in corporate worship, in fellowship with the body, in prayer, in standing, in singing, not in isolation. Our strength for this war is not in the power to change or to conform, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. A lot of times we'll say, well, if I could cut this out, if I could stop doing that, if I could stop doing this, if I could not be there or not be, I'll give you one example. 
particularly kind of in our digital age, which we're always surrounded by with our social media and all of those things, right? That we have this idea that we're going to combat this in our own strength. We're going to be strength. So we combat the ills in this world in our own wisdom and our own strength. And in this case, it's like, well, I'm just going to go off the grid. But our strength is not in living off the grid. Our strength is not in deleting all of our social media apps. And I'm not saying that won't help or that's a bad idea. I'm saying it won't solve the battle Paul is talking about here. Our strength is not in extracting ourselves from the world, culture, or even digital culture. It is calling us to do battle in this evil age and in these arenas to be strong, not in ourselves, but in the Lord. And when we've done all that we know to do, we just continue to stand. And what is that strength? That's what Paul tells us in Ephesians 1. That's why he said, finally, in what strength? In the strength that God has given you is nothing less than the resurrection power. Power. That's the mighty strength that he said that God demonstrated when he raised Christ Jesus from the dead. That current resurrection power presently lives inside of you. If you were here for week one, that message was entitled, We've Got the Power. It's been a while. Our power for withstanding every attack is our present resurrection power that lives inside of us. We stand in the strength of God because he is strong, not because we are strong. He is stronger than the grave. He is stronger than Satan. He is stronger than death because if Satan were stronger than God, then we'd have a real problem and no ability to stand. And yet, Satan still attacks, doesn't he? Satan attacks, not because he's unbeaten, No, but because he's been beaten badly. He's been defeated in principle, in heavenly places. He is defeated. It's finished. And why? He is outraged because of that. So he's using whatever energy he has left to pour it all out on us while he still can. As one commentator put it, it's like the enemy is emptying his spleen on us. I was like, that's disgusting. That's what he's doing. He's dying. He's, he's a defeated foe. So we take up arms and fight, not because the final end of the cosmic war is in any doubt, because it's not. It's one. There's no doubt. We fight because we're on the side, on this side of eternity, we're with God. The decisive victory has been won through the cross of Jesus Christ. And it is our privilege, it's our honor, it's our calling to follow in our Savior's footsteps, following in Jesus' footsteps to expand the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. That's our calling. And that's our hope. Verse 11 goes on to say, Put on the full armor of God. What's it saying? Put on Christ in essence. Identify with God and his purposes for your life. That's what we're doing. So you can do what? So you can take a stand. There's that word stand that I heard Tuesday morning. It denotes strength. It denotes stability and success in a conflict. The word stand is repeated a few times in these few verses because that's Paul's goal. He wants us to stand and not to be on the ground. That's what he's saying. See, when you're in a battle and you're standing, you still got a chance to win. Whatever metaphor you want to use, whether it's a battle, whether it's wrestling, whether it's boxing, when you're down on the ground, when you're on the mat, you're in a position to lose. So Paul's saying, well, well, don't get, don't fall. Don't fall down. Don't get down on that mat. 
I think this is also why I thought about Proverbs where it says, or Ecclesiastes where it says that two are better than one. Because we often read that verse, it's like somebody tripped and fell. No, it's like falling because the enemy's trying to take us out. Two are better than one because if you fall by yourself, there's nobody there to help you get up off that mat. But if you're walking together as the body of Christ, as one, really, because this whole thing is about corporately putting on the spiritual armor, that somebody's there to make sure that you don't stay down on the mat and get taken out. So Paul mixes war and wrestling metaphors here, outfitted for war, standing as in a wrestling match. But what we need to know is that in the face of Satan, we don't panic because Christ has defeated him. Satan is now a defeated foe. He's a lion, yes, but he's a lion on a chain. He's not, as I've said, he's a a toothless one. Yes, he's got some power, but he doesn't have all the power. What does that mean for us who are in Christ? That we should detest Satan, but not dread him. Because we have the power of the resurrection at work inside of us. We don't run from Satan in fear. We stand in faith and sing the praises of the one who defeated him. That's the victory. At the same time, we're also not presumptuous and we're not arrogant. I got this. No, you don't. No, you don't. When taking a stand against the devil, it matters that we know who our adversary is. We know it's Satan, yes, but Paul wants you to know that your enemy is powerful. That's what he's saying. He's like, finally, in light of all that you are in Christ, I need you to know something. You're not just fighting something that's easy. In the art of war, Sun Tzu said, right, about that you should know yourself and thus all know your enemy if you want to have victory in war. In this spiritual war, this metaphor, Paul said, he's already spent the first five chapters telling you who you are so you know who you are. Now he's going to say, but you also need to know who the enemy is. So if you know who you are in Christ and you know who the enemy is, that he is a foe that has some power, then you can be victorious. He wants to give us a thorough knowledge of our enemy, which is necessary for victory. Why? Because if we think we have no enemy, or if we think it's not really an enemy worth thinking about, that's not that big of a deal, then why pray? Then why put on the full armor of God? Then why even worry about a battle? If that's our approach, we will just continue to pridefully or naively carry through our lives in our own strength. And I think we fight too many battles even now in our own strength, in our own wisdom, in our own power. And that's why we get pummeled. That's why we get knocked out. That's why we hit the mat. Also, as an important aside, this putting on of the armor is something Paul wants us to do, watch this, collectively and stand as one. Not stand alone as one person against the collective powers of hell. That's stupid. Too often spiritual warfare is seen as an individual believer's call to put on, I'm going to put on the armor of God and fight demonic forces all alone. As if it's some kind of proof of my spiritual faith and strength. And I mean, that's fine if you pray, I pray that and I'm going to put on, you want to envision that. But you better envision the fact that you're doing that with other people called your brothers and sisters in Christ that you can call on or they're going to be with you when you do take a hit and you do hit the mat that can help you up even in their armor and you continue to fight the fight. Because we're not fighting alone. This could be further from the truth. Spiritual warfare is about God's people joining their Lord in his warfare. 
he equips us, Ephesians 4, and empowers us, 1 Corinthians 12, to accompany him into enemy territory and further his kingdom purposes or to maintain what Christ has already purchased on the cross and not give up any ground. So in between this exhortation to seek the Lord's strength and to put on the armor of God and the itemizing of all of that armor that I'm not going into today and describing it, we get a frightening and frank description of our enemy. And that's what I want to kind of hone in on before we close. First of all, the devil has schemes. Let's know our enemy. The devil has schemes. Now we know all, there are lots of schemes out there in the world. A lot of schemes to try to steal your money, right? You can get text about it. You get phone calls about it. You get email about it. You get all kinds of stuff. Back in my day, just somebody coming to my door to sell me a magazine. Now it's all kinds of things. I remember I was in grad school one time and this, this person came to my door. I didn't have any money. I was in grad school, had very little money, but I did have a checkbook. And so, uh, you know, it's like, hey, you could get all these magazines. And I'm like, wow, that's great. And then I'm kind of starting to feel like, man, I don't know if this is legit. And, uh, and uh, so anyway, I was like, okay, I had a hard time saying no to people. So I'm like, what can I do? So I'm like, okay, I'll write the check. I'll get, maybe I will get some Sports Illustrateds in the mail. I don't know. I write the check. And then as soon as I write the check, I shut the door and I go call the bank and I tell him to cancel the check because <laughs> I was like this ain't legit but I couldn't tell the guy no I mean that was terrible just ambivalent in my own heart <laughs> but here's the reality the devil has schemes matter of fact this word in the Greek is where we get our word method he's got methods the devil has methods and guess what? They're tailored to every locale and every culture and every class of people. It doesn't matter if you're rich. It doesn't matter if you're middle class. It doesn't matter if you're poor. It doesn't matter what your color is. His methods are tailor-made for your situation to mess you up, to make you weak, to make you fall down and to destroy your life. Yes. It's good to know this since we often believe this. If we could change our situation, we could experience a better salvation. Really? And here's how we often believe that. Like, what do I mean? Well, if I could change my external factors, I could be a better Christian. If I had more money, or if I didn't have this job, or if I had that job, or if I wasn't around these people and I was around these people. But know this about your enemy Satan always has a new method for what you think is a new and better situation. He's got methods, he's got schemes. There's never a place where he doesn't have a method to get to you if you're going to follow in his footsteps and not in Christ. But in Christ, we have the armor so that we can discern and figure out how to protect against the methods of the enemy so that we can stand firm. Other words in the translations are used as wiles of the devil or stratagems. He's a deceiver. He can be an angel of light. He can be a dangerous wolf, the Bible says, disguised as a sheep. As one author put it, Satan alternates between intimidation and insinuation. He's both a bully and a beguiler. He uses force and fraud. And he uses it all and it takes on all kinds of forms. And one of his biggest schemes, one of his biggest methods is to make us think that he doesn't exist. So not only is our enemy cunning, but if you look at verse 12, you also see that he's powerful and wicked. Let's go on, verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This is an often quoted but rarely ever believed verse. And what I mean by that. I mean, we have a hard time seeing the enemy's tactics behind people's actions. 
We see flesh and blood being used and we cannot disassociate them from the principalities and the evil forces of this dark world that are behind them. And so we demonize people instead of demonizing the demons. Those evil forces want to manipulate us into what? Into division and discord and destruction and sin. Let's admit it. Fighting an unseen enemy is probably the hardest thing that we do as believers. Like, I don't, so what do we do? We default to fighting a seen adversary. We default to hating those that we see as opposed to those that we cannot see. Forgetting that Jesus told us to what? Even love your enemies. Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, love them. In reality, the spiritual war is unseen, it's cosmic, it's invisible, it's everywhere. It's like a pandemic in some ways, invisible and disrupting everything in our world. And this type of warfare is the context of our Christian life right now. A profound spiritual warfare of cosmic proportions that all of us are in, whether we want to realize it and admit it or not. But one thing is for certain, Paul wants us to know our enemy is powerful and wicked. These powers and principalities are supernatural beings. First of all, he talks about the leader. The leader of these principalities is the devil. Unfortunately, we have distilled the devil down into some sort of mythological red-suited antagonist that doesn't really have anything to do with our life. But he's a real enemy with different names that we have all experienced in this life. The devil means accuser. Why? Because Revelation says that he accuses God's people at the throne of God day and night. He's accusing you accusing us. He's also our adversary. Why? It means that he's the enemy of God and he's the enemy of all that love God and hold to God. He's also called the tempter. Ever been tempted? He's called the murderer. He's called the liar. He's called and compared to a lion, a serpent, an angel of light and the God, little g of this age. He's not all knowing. He's not omniscient. He's not all powerful and everywhere at all times. So he has help. John says that a third of the angels, he, he alluded to the fact that a third of the angels fell with Satan when he rebelled against God. Paul calls them what? Principalities, powers, rulers, spiritual wickedness in high places. These aren't systems. These aren't governments. These are, if you will, spiritual beings that can influence all of those things. But this is what Paul is talking about. There is a spiritual battle going on at all times in this world and we're a part of that battle. But again, we must constantly remind ourselves that our battle is not against other human beings made in the image of God, but spiritual powers, hence why our weapons are not carnal or man-made, but are spiritual. That's why it seems foolish that in the light of the things that are going on that we would stand and sing praises to God. And yet, that's what we're called to do. Paul wants us to know that Satan is a defeated foe, but not a powerless foe. He is a strong enemy, but we have and need the greater strength, the power of God to be able to stand against him. Satan wants to use the external enemy of the world and the culture and our internal enemy of our flesh to defeat us. His weapons, his methods, his battle plans are powerful, but the power of God is infinitely stronger. Amen? So then in verse 13, and we'll close, Paul belabors an earlier point that he's already made. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. 
this letter to the Ephesians is all about a power struggle, a cosmic power struggle. I want to remind you that this is what you are involved in today. As a believer in Christ, you are on his side and in this battle. Or as an enemy of Christ, you are opposed to him. It's either one or the other. The day of evil, we say, what's the day of evil? The day of evil is the evil day that is coming in your life anytime evil is encountered. It's not some grand day of evil down the line at the apocalypse or something like that. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying the day of evil, when it visits you, anytime it visits you, then you're going to need to be able to stand. Because your day of evil might look a little different than my day of evil. Or we may have some days of evil that we all experience together. As Christians, we're called to stand. Or in this verse, he also says to withstand. And that may not seem like much, like I'm just standing but I want you to know that is victory. Why? Because many people have fallen and never got back up. I'm talking about in their faith. We are maintaining what Christ has already won. When the battle ends, this time against you, maybe, I'm talking about that day of evil. And when that battle ends against you, against your family, against your church, against your friends, or whatever it may be, we will not, here's the point, that when that battle ends, whenever that day of evil visits you, that when that battle ends, you will not have given up any ground in your life to the enemy, but stood firm in your faith and put your hope and trust in Christ. And if anything, you've grown stronger in your faith in Christ through the battle, not weaker or fallen down or fouled out or given up. Here's the cool thing. The truth is you have the higher ground. Like we're not in a trench somewhere being overwhelmed. We have the higher ground. If you want to think about of Golgotha, the, the hill, the cross and the enemy is trying to ascend from our advantageous point and he can't he's going to keep trying but if we'll stand in our hearts don't waver don't give in don't give up in this spiritual resistance of this age if we'll resist and if we'll stand firm if we'll do even as I said like standing over there Brent just stand just stand and sing to the Lord because he is good what's happening in in our life might not be good what happened in Texas was it good what's happening in our nation and in world and all kinds of places all over it's not good but God is good so we can do what? We can stand and sing so that when all those things continue to happen, we don't waver, we don't doubt, we don't quit, we don't give up, we don't quit sharing the testimony of what Christ has done in our lives and what he can do for others. We don't stop sharing the gospel. We don't give up on the power of the gospel. We don't give up on the power of unity in the body of Christ. We don't give up on the power of diversity and unity together. We don't give up fighting the good fight of faith because those things will make you want to fall down and quit. And what Paul is saying is, no. You're seated with Christ in heavenly places, the higher ground, the most advantageous point that you could be in in a battle. Now stand. 
praises of the one who delivered you from death. Stand and sing to the one who conquered death. Stand and sing to the Lord because he is good. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. Through when all else fails, as the word says, having done everything, we stand. And in just a moment, we're going to do just that. We're going to stand and we're going to sing again. Why? Why do we do that at church? Because that's what the Christians have always done throughout history. They have stood and they have joyfully sung to the Lord. Yes, they have bowed and they've lifted their hands and they've danced before God. But the point is, is that we stand in honor of our King and we lift our hearts in our hands, in our voices and praise the one who is praiseworthy, even in the middle of the most horrific things that we may be going through. And I don't know what you're going through personally. I know what we're going through corporately. I know what we're going through nationally. I know what the things that we see in the news around us in the world and all of that's extremely difficult and troubling but even today we can stand and sing the praise of the one who's purchased our lives and any who would call on his name so maybe today you're just reaffirming that strength that you have in Christ alone God, I'm going to stand. I'm not going to waver. Maybe you're, maybe you're in a situation where you're thinking, you know what, maybe I ought to just kind of walk away from this. Maybe I ought to take a break from Jesus and this church and this God thing. Maybe I ought to take a break from the people of God. Maybe this trying to build a multi-ethnic, multi-generational community thing's not really going to happen this day in my lifetime. Maybe I won't try that anymore. Maybe I won't try this for you, Lord. And I want to encourage you today to stand and to sing and to watch the deliverance of God be manifested in your life some of us today is salvation that you would stand and sing that you are a sinner in need of the salvation of a savior Lord would you have your way in this church have your way in our lives come on church let's stand you have been listening to the in focus church podcast we hope God met you right where you're at today be sure to like subscribe and leave a rating wherever you're listening from and visit infocuschurch.org for more on all that's going on in the life of our church